Novax Djokovic, am I right? Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, somebody had to do it. Somebody had to do it. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is April 21st, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me from the other side of New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. I mean, technically, it's the other side of Central Park, I guess, the other side (laughs) of Manhattan. Not the whole city. I'm not out in Queens or anything. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to malign your your whereabouts. (laughs) And from his car in Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm having a lot of technical problems today. <laughs> I got So Jeff- that's different how? No, it's especially bad today. I got power <laughs> issues left and right, mic issues. I've got headphone issues, but I think everything's straight. You guys, I have I have a confession to make. So on this podcast in the past, I have expressed a preference for a certain men's tennis player over other more highly regarded men's tennis players. Um, I've never been a big Roger Federer fan. I find him a little smug. And I have always preferred Novak Djokovic. And now I maybe can't prefer Novak Djokovic anymore. Over the weekend on some social media live stream, he said he is anti an anti-vaxxer and doesn't want to get the vaccine for the coronavirus when it is in place. Like no vax Djokovic, am I right? Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, somebody had to do it. Somebody had to do it. Yeah, I love how he was like, I don't believe in vaccines. And so this creates like a dilemma for me. It's like, dude, you can fix this dilemma at any moment by just getting a freaking vaccine. Like when it exists, of course. Right. Like you would rather not get a vaccine that the entire world is like hoping for right now so that we can go back to our lives um, because you don't believe in science. That's just like, I don't know. He has a history of, of kind of being a little bit of a quack. Like, doesn't he sleep in like a hyperbolic chamber and he's always going on strange diets and that kind of thing. So it's a little bit in character. Although if you're like willing to chase weird science, why don't you believe normal science? I don't know. Yeah. It's so much easier to believe normal science. I've just never, I've just, it was a bad yeah. take. Yeah. Look, you feel vindicated you. because you didn't understand me? Federer's likable. You were wrong. <laughs> Have you heard the guy talk? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that he was objectively likable. He plays the game with Flair and Grace. Come on. Like, right before his serve, he was like posing for the fan, like smiling with his thumbs up. Like he, he's a man of the he's a man of the people. Yeah, not me. Still not me. Um, team Rafa now. That's, and and Djokovic you know. can't be a man of the people because he'll just infect them with coronavirus. Yeah, he can't go among the people. <laughs> On today's show, we'll preview the NFL draft and what the models are telling us about who will go when. Then we'll discuss the new ESPN documentary, The Last Dance, and talk Michael Jordan, what the numbers say about his legacy and how he'd fit into the NBA of today. Finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Another week, another draft. After last week's WNBA draft, the NFL is set to virtually hold the first round of its draft this Thursday, April 23rd. While there's a lot of consensus around the first two picks, the drama this year may center on when and where Alabama quarterback Tua Tungavailoa goes. ESPN's Stats and Information Group created a draft prediction model, which we'll talk about more in a minute, that gives Tua a 45% chance of going third to the Detroit Lions or to another team that trades up to the Lions pick. But Tua has fallen in mock drafts, hitting number six in Mel Kuyper's version and number 13 in Peter King's. Booger McFarlane had this to say on ESPN's Get Up about the possibility of Oregon's Justin Herbert being taken ahead of the Alabama QB. But Chip Kelly told me this once. When you play in the National Football League, it's not if you get hurt, it's when you get hurt. And Tua is a young guy. He's going to get hurt. It's part of the game. Look at all the quarterbacks in the National Football League. They've been hurt. They're going to get hurt. It's just about how you recover and can you prevent some of those injuries. And for people to say, I'm going to take Justin Herbert over Tua Tungabaloa, the gap between those two, to me, is astronomical. It's like an ocean. <laughs> 
The ESPN model seems to agree with McFarlane that Tua is probably going to be one of the first three picks. Neil, you had a chance to dig into this model. Tell us a little bit more about how it works and what it's saying about this draft class. Yeah, so uh, this is a really cool thing that Brian Burke of ESPN Stats and Information Group created that basically synthesizes together a bunch of mock drafts. It also looks at what each team needs positionally. Uh, it takes into account scouting assessments uh, of players and even kind of trade possibilities in terms of who who might trade up or down to kind of take someone puts all of this together to generate the odds that each player will be taken with each pick. And those are also kind of conditional odds. So it can tell you the chances that anyone will be available at a given draft slot, which is particularly pertinent for Tua, because it says that there's an 84% chance that Tua will be available with the third pick. So for a team like Detroit, if they are hoping to kind of get their quarterback of the future and, and maybe move on from Matt Stafford at some point, it's pretty good chance that he'll be available there with presumably Burrow, Joe Burrow and, and Chase Young would be one and two. But then there's only a 33% chance that Tua falls to the fifth pick, which would be the Dolphins or, you know, if they, if they traded with a team. Uh, and so it, it kind of helps you. It's designed, I think, uh, to, to kind of help you put on your GM hat and think about, uh, the, the, the risk reward of waiting for someone to fall into your lap if you have a particular prospect in mind, uh, versus maybe trading up and, and improving your odds of getting exactly the player that you want. The range for Tua is really interesting to me. He, he proved so much to us during his college career. Jeff, is that the uncertainty about him only due to his injury history? Yeah, I, I think 100%. I think it's all injuries. I mean, and it's risky. I mean, I, I kind of get that. You you do, Like, when NFL players do get hurt, many of them, you know, tend to stay hurt. Um, you Now, look, there's definitely exceptions to the rule. Like, obviously, you know, notably, Rob Gronkowski was someone who was injured a lot in, in college and, and, and slid in the draft and wasn't a huge prospect. And while he was injured a lot in the pros also, he obviously had a great career. Adrian Peterson was someone who was injured. There's definitely been guys who've been injured in college and had great pro careers. But quarterbacks is a little different because of the investment, I think, and especially with a pick this high. Recently, the ones I could think of would be Sam Bradford, um, who had fairly significant injuries um, in college, Robert Griffin also had injuries in college and both those guys for, I mean, you know, granted different injuries, different scenarios, but they did have injury plagued NFL careers. Um, but they, you could argue that they're also kind of the exceptions. Um, and you could also argue too, is a little bit of an exception because his injury it's the last thing we saw, you know, like he didn't even finish the season and, and some those guys generally came back and, you know, whether it was, a, you know, a year prior or something like that where they were hurt. Um, so they did kind of end their college careers on a high note. So I think that's adding to this sort of risk reward, um, you know, discrepancy we're seeing with Tua and they're definitely significant. And the, the type of injury and the severity of his injury were, Huge too, which is funny. You don't really think like a dislocated anything doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but dislocating your hip is a huge deal and really could be a problem for him, him later on in his life too. Yeah. And, and, you know, the way he plays quarterback, similar to Griffin, where he's mobile, you know, he's going to take more hits than a, a guy who's just, you know, planted in the pocket. So it, and obviously his, his, feet are a big part of his game so you know he's not Michael Vick but he definitely is a, a you know a modern quarterback so so where will where do we think he'll go do the Lions want him at number three I don't see the Lions moving away from Stafford just yet I think you know the Lions have other issues I don't really think anyone will look at the Lions and say Stafford is the problem I see the Dolphins taking him I think this is a great opportunity for the Dolphins. It kind of just makes sense. I, and now, whether they want to trade up and get them or, or risk, you know, waiting until where they're drafting, that that's interesting. I think that is one of the things people don't really know. But I, I'd be very surprised if Detroit took them. Which team should, like, is likely to trade up for him, Neil? 
Well, I mean, you mentioned the Dolphins. That seems like kind of an obvious team. And it does seem like a nice match where, you know, the Lions have that pick and they could go other directions. So they kind of hold all the cards in this. Uh, you know, they, they could take a defensive player. There'll probably be some good ones still available, uh, at the, you know, number three spot, even if Chase Young is off the board. Uh, but they could also, they could take Tua, you know, and, and, uh, try to kind of, move on because I don't know, Matthew Stafford has been hurt a lot in recent, uh, I guess just this past recent year, uh, he had, um, his long streak of, of consecutive starts end, and so, you know, he's not a sure thing going forward. And, and the lions are a team that are constantly searching for whatever the right answer is for them to, to kind of, uh, make that leap and finally win a super bowl. (laughs) <laughs> One of the few franchises that have that have never won a Super Bowl ever. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that that's what makes this the most interesting thing. And I think the ringer had a story about how the Lions basically I think they called the they, they had the skeleton key to the whole draft where they basically whatever they end up doing with that number three pick will dictate what pretty much the rest of the the at least the first half of the first round, how that plays out. So, yeah, to me, they're the team to keep an eye on no matter what. The Chargers, I think, would be the other one. But then the uh, sort of X factor here is the fact that Cam Newton and Jameis Winston are just sitting there. So if you're a team like the Chargers that, you know, wants to win right away, that's a perfectly good, if not better option than a rookie quarterback and potentially an injury prone rookie quarterback. I did see a uh, report that the Giants were interested in too, which would be, I think that was just a, you know, smokescreen kind of thing, but that would be hilarious. You know, uh, they're interested in Herbert too, which is so ridiculous because a year ago we were doing this and I was saying, why would they like reach and take Daniel Jones when they can just get, you know, Justin Herbert next year? Um, you know, when we were assuming he, you know, remember this guy was for a while projected to be the number one overall pick. Mm. And, you know, his last season in Oregon, I think took a lot of the, um, you know, luster off him because he definitely was not as good as he was two years ago. It's a, it's a case where a guy should have gone out earlier. Well, and, and also, I mean, that's what one of the things that makes this draft class really interesting is this group of quarterbacks where you have the slam dunk number one pick basically presumptive number one pick in burrow who's coming off this amazing year but you know we've talked about it before he it kind of came out of nowhere uh compared with his previous years he's a little bit old for for a um a prospect coming out you know even one that that was a four-year uh you know a senior and so uh you got him at number one and then the history generally for the quarterbacks next after those like slam dunk number one quarterbacks in the draft it's it's not always pretty if you think about it. That's the the area where you end up maybe kind of overdrafting someone because you want a quarterback reaching for them, and then they end up being you know Achilles Smith or something like that. Uh, ponder. Yeah, I mean that's happened a lot where it's like the next best thing at quarterback in the draft, or, or the especially the third quarterback taken if it's in the first round uh, doesn't have the best track record uh, of of being good. So I think that that is all intriguing because the quarterback position is the position that everybody's the most focused on generally in the draft uh, and I guess in football in general. And and they're the ones with the most uncertainty, I think. Um, and, and this, what you throw into his injury and it's just this like crazy uncertainty. It's funny, Neil, I usually use Ryan Tannehill as the example of the, the dreaded third quarterback taken because he went Eighth overall after Luck and Griffin went one and two. I don't know what to think about Ryan Tannenhill. Maybe he's great. I've had to rethink everything on that guy. But obviously Brandon Whedon went later that in that draft, and he was a huge bust. So I think you're right. Well, so Burrow is obviously the the most likely to go first in the draft. Saw that FanDuel has the odds that Burrow is picked first at minus 100,000. Jeff, that means you'd need to risk a hundred thousand dollars to win a hundred i don't yeah that's ridiculous i actually think that's kind of a bad line because who knows i mean we saw what happened you know with laramie tunsil what if there's a video emerges of uh joe burrow with a gas mask on you know right before the draft joe burrow's white it's not gonna matter (laughs) 
True. I mean, that's the truth, though. That's with the Laramie Tunsil thing. Well, it's the bet that it's the bet that he goes to Cincinnati or one or just, just one, one in general. General, because that would have been okay. a sneaky, that sneaky little uh, twist to put on it if if he had to go to Cincinnati also at number one. Right. <laughs> So the favorite to go second is Ohio State defensive end Chase Young. So assuming that Burrow and Young go to Cincinnati and Washington, respectively, what what impact do we think they will have there? Well, I think we've seen defensive players kind of be able to step in and, and perform. Just, you know, think about last year, Nick Bosa with the 49ers, uh, just be able to kind of come in and devastate uh, right away. I think people are seeing that potential with Chase Young for sure. Yeah. I think the problem with the uh, Washington is that it's they have a lot of needs and um, you know pass rush is is probably not the top of that list. But he's just I mean, look, I went to Michigan. The guy I've watched a lot of highlights of that guy just devastating things and devastating. He's, a, he's players a, on Michigan. <laughs> yeah, well, on Michigan, but it was more like the games ahead of time and me anticipating what would happen and how bad it would be. And it was. Um, but he's like a – he in most drafts, he's a one overall. Like he's just such a clear talent. Right. So what about Burrow? Is I mean, Cincinnati's situation has – they have some players. They have some some good players, but they were just so bad. Um what like can he have an immediate impact? Can Burrow have an immediate impact? I think I think he has a very high floor. I think he's a guy who's going to be starting week one. I mean, part of that I think is because of his age. You got to you got to get going with him. You can't just sit around for a couple of years. <laughs> um, so that's without a question. But he, he, he there's no there's no real faults in his game. He, he can do everything. If anything. If there's a fault at all, as Neil mentioned earlier, it's that we haven't seen that much. So maybe it was it was a fluke and it, it would have been one of these things if he came back another year, you know, not unlike Herbert and, you know, maybe lost his offensive coordinator or lost some key skill position guys. It, his numbers would look a lot worse and they wouldn't be able to replicate what he did. So besides for sample size, there are no real like clear faults to his game. So I think he will be a serviceable NFL quarterback at the minimum, but whether he's a generational talent, you know, a Drew Brees, it is to be determined. And he certainly had a generational season. And we kind of went through that in uh, around the national championship game on the podcast. Uh, And it's, created this situation where you basically have to take him first uh, if you're Cincinnati uh, or whoever potentially trades up for him just because like a quarterback coming off the type of year that he had, you'll be second guessed forever if you pass on him. And maybe even if you take a Chase Young and he ends up being, you know, like an all pro uh, type of defender. But if Joe Burrow ends up being a quarterback that's like a Super Bowl caliber QB, that's just one of those things where it's almost like a defensive minded pick where you're sort of I'm taking this to fend off any potential criticism because it is just so obvious when you have a quarterback with that kind of resume, you got to take him number one, basically. Yeah, it would be like taking Sam Bowie. Shout out to the next segment. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Hold your horses. <laughs> so the league held a practice draft on Monday, which I I like that they did that. I think that's that's both funny but also important. But there were a few problems. There was some sort of technical glitch during the Bengals' first pick of the draft that they had to stop the clock. There was a delay there. Then there was a coach whose internet went down, according to Diana Rossini of ESPN, because his kids were on their iPads and using too much bandwidth. <laughs> Love that. Classic. Yeah. And there was a situation where GMs were forgetting to mute their lines when they weren't talking, when they We've weren't supposed there. to be talking. Yeah, that's a, I found that extremely relatable. <laughs> Do you guys have any guesses for which team will have the biggest disruption during this draft? Like kids who will yell the wrong pick or dogs barking too loud in the background? Any, um, any guesses for biggest disruption? I mean, the Browns are the obvious <laughs> pick for that, I guess. I don't know. You got to throw the Giants in there. It just yeah. feels like Gettleman. Gettleman will <laughs> mess this up somehow. But he t- he he will mess it up with the actual just like pick that he makes. Yeah, that's kind make- of that's True. kind of assured more than the technological factor. Like 
obviously I would be worrying about the Vikings screwing up the draft because hello history. But in this case, I feel like if they just didn't make their pick in time, they would be saved by, <laughs> Oh, Oh, sorry. I had technical problems. It wasn't just that I am an idiot and forgot to pick. Uh, you know, yeah. If, if you're on the clock, them. if you're on the clock and you run out of time, doesn't this kind of provide cover for you? Like, I you think just so. be like, oh, my Wi-Fi is slow. You know, sorry. Yeah. Oh, let me kick my kid off the iPad. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> can they make? Can teams just make their picks in Fortnite? <laughs> okay, I think that's a good spot for us to leave this for now. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some old NBA guy. We continue to go without basketball, but the new ESPN documentary, The Last Dance on Michael Jordan and the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls, is tidying us over for now. It's also igniting what feels like an age-old debate at this point. MJ or LeBron? (laughs) Who is the GOAT? Jay Williams weighed in yesterday on Get Up on how The Last Dance portrayed Jordan and where he stands against LeBron. The only thing that was subpar was his three-point shooting. But in today's game, if Jordan had acclimated to this style of play, yeah, he would have been probably the best player in the league. The only person I could see actually defending Jordan is Kawhi Leonard when Kawhi Leonard is healthy. And Kawhi Leonard is low-managing, and Jordan never low-managed. So, yes, I do agree with Kevin Durant that Jordan would be probably the most prolific scorer in the history of the game, even if he were playing today, because the amount of possessions are unlimited. I'm always in favor of a good Michael versus LeBron debate. But first, Neil, you actually wrote a piece on Michael Jordan last week and how he did everything that he did. What did you find? Yeah. So first of all, uh, the stats in that debate between LeBron and Michael are actually on Jordan's side, which is a little bit surprising because LeBron has always been sort of the darling of the advanced stats uh, pretty much since 2007, 2008, 2009, that range when he was kind of having these all-time great seasons. Uh, and so I expected going into my research for this for it to be very close, but it's actually pretty decisive in a lot of ways in favor of Jordan. I mean, he's the all-time an NBA leader in win shares per 48 minutes, player efficiency rating, and also, most importantly, Raptor, the stat that we've talked about approximately 6,000 times in this podcast, uh, our, our new player rating, that LeBron has the highest Raptor plus minus. So on a per possession basis, he adds 8.6 net points to his team. So those are the numbers that we're kind of working the top line numbers with with Jordan. And the way he was able to achieve it is really interesting, too, uh, in, in a number of different ways. So he combined probably scoring volume and uh, and efficiency as well as pretty much every any player ever. The only players that are kind of in the same conversation are Kevin Durant and Steph Curry, and they lean a little bit more toward efficiency at that end of the spectrum, whereas Jordan was more volume. He's the all-time career leader in points per 36 minutes after you adjust for pace. And he did most of his work from inside the the arc. And a lot of it was done not through kind of the LeBron style or the Russell Westbrook style, like just bull rushes to the basket. Jordan did a lot of that when he was younger, but by the end, by the, the version of Jordan that we're seeing in this documentary, The Last Dance, we're seeing Jordan basically take this almost complete diet of mid-range jump shots, fadeaways from the post, nifty little kind of post footwork uh, action and everything. Jordan was good at getting fouled, but aside from that, his particular shot selection was what we would consider now to be incredibly inefficient in terms of the mid-range shots and the fadeaways and the and the action from the post. And yet, he was able to make a higher percentage of his two-point shots in his career than Kobe, than Carmelo Anthony, than Russell Westbrook, even than Dirk Nowitzki, who was famously one of the only other players in history that was able to kind of, you could build an all-time historic offense around a player being able to shoot from the mid range. Plus Jordan was a fabulous defender, you know, multiple time, all defense, defensive player of the year in 1988, great Raptor defensive rating. Shout out again to Raptor. Uh, (laughs) So I think if you look at Jordan overall, uh, and I didn't even talk about the fact that he almost never turned the ball over. He and Dominique Wilkins are the only two players in history to have a usage rate over 30% and a turnover rate under 10%. That is not easy to do. Uh, and it really speaks to Jordan's ability to just make the right decision, not make mistakes, and and create really efficient shots for himself and, and his teammates. I wonder how much 
You know, I was thinking about that when I was watching the documentary. And especially one thing I noticed, which I was a little surprised by, was that when he won that uh, title with Carolina in 82, there wasn't even a, a three-point line on the court. And he hit that shot to... And I, I, I guess I, I I didn't quite appreciate that. That I actually looked it up, and, and it was interesting. In college basketball, there were like some conferences that were using it, but obviously you know, not in the tournament or, or not in the ACC. Um, so it, I wonder how much of that was just a product of, of the game he learned, you know, coming up. And if he were to play in in this land of hypotheticals now, he would just step back a few more feet and, and shoot a high volume of threes. I mean, obviously the three-point shootout uh, where he was terrible, you know, is in our memories, but he, he could, I, I have faith that if he had took a James Harden level of threes, he would probably make him at a very good clip. We remember him knocking down those shots over Cliff Robinson in the 92 finals and then giving the shrug like, I don't know, even I don't know what's going on here. So yeah, I have no doubt that Jordan would be able to kind of step back and and be able to make those. Uh, And I think you're right that just never encountering that in college or kind of growing up, uh, was a big factor why in the 80s they didn't take many threes. Um, the NBA introduced it, didn't introduce it at all until 1980, and they kind of ported it over from the ABA. Uh, and it was seen as this kind of newfangled, you know, it's a shot that you would use if you were down big, I think late in games because it allowed you to make comebacks faster. Uh, but aside from that, it was not a staple of the normal offense. And Jordan was, you know, smack dab in the middle of that era of of people just starting to come to grips with the fact that there is a shot worth three points. This is a good, like a good encapsulation of why this, the LeBron versus Jordan debate is kind of stupid because, (laughs) because you can't like, you can't really era adjust. You, you can try, there are things we can do to do that, but like, we can't know what Jordan would be like in this era. He, he would have been a different kind of player. He probably would have been a player a lot more like LeBron and would have developed different parts of his game and who knows how LeBron would have been in the late eighties, early nineties either. Yeah. He probably would have played a lot like Carl Malone. If you think about it in terms of, you know, physicality and the ability to hit shots, but you know, also just being able to kind of bull his way inside, but also having, you know, passing touch. But anyway, uh, we're not talking about building a time machine. We're talking about value because we can kind of calculate discrete value to winning games within the situation and the environment that you're actually in and then compare who had the most value in their era compared with someone else who had a different amount of value within the context of their own era. So I don't think we're claiming anything in terms of being able to say whose style would port over between eras as much as we're saying value within era compared with each other. Even there though, it's tricky. I mean, like one of the one of the knocks on Jordan. I mean, it's not even a knock. It's just in this comparison, Jordan had uh, an incredibly strong supporting cast. I mean, we saw that in the first two episodes of the documentary when Scottie Pippen was out at the beginning of the 97, 98 season, the, the bulls looked bad. Um, and even at the beginning of Jordan's career, he couldn't carry the, the, the bulls by himself though. He certainly tried um, and came close, but he couldn't, he couldn't. And he had a better supporting cast when he won, those six titles, then maybe LeBron did. Maybe. I mean, that's these are like the hard things to to really compare. And he didn't have to contend with another kind of fellow dynasty or anything like that. If you think right. about the Golden State Warriors kind of just being there every single year waiting for LeBron when he got to the finals, basically. Although you put those Utah Jazz teams up against pretty much anybody, you know, if, if Jordan hadn't been there, they probably would have won multiple championships. And we saw a team that did win multiple championships in Jordan's absence in the Houston Rockets. Is it a knock on LeBron that the Eastern Conference was so much easier to win when he was when he was winning, uh, you know, when he was getting to the finals with both the, the Heat and the Cavs? I don't know if it's a knock on him. It's not his fault. Um, and they did... They did deliver in, in, you know, a few of those finals and he won the title. So I think that's right. um, all that matters. And it's certainly beating the, the Warriors, you know, with the Cavs will like, I think that did a lot to like cement his legacy. 
But I think the team building factor, just to go back a bit, is huge. And we've talked about this before that, you know, while Jordan had, you know, Pippen and then Pippen and Rodman, which I think was their that era's definition of a super team, it wasn't as prevalent. You still had these teams like the Knicks who were trying to do it alone with Ewing, you know, and a bunch of a bunch of teams that they the stars weren't all, you know, congregating around several, you know, key powers and if 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 that was happening today i think you'd see a a lot of teams realizing that the only way to beat jordan and pippen and rodman or just jordan and pippen is to assemble stars and that mentality didn't really you know set in in earnest until i think the celtics did it with with pierce and garnett and allen um from that point on you almost need you know two or three huge stars to even be considered in the conversation yeah and teams were built a lot more through the draft i mean even the the bulls they were able to get pippen basically from obscurity in central arkansas uh they they got horace grant i think pippen they they traded on the day of the draft with the supersonics and it was kind of an orchestrated thing but they drafted horace grant uh and then later on they they uh got tony kukoc uh from croatia brought him over and rodman was only available because he had done rodman style antics with the san antonio spurs (laughs) and became available uh but the rest of that team was really kind of built uh around the draft and a lot of that goes to a guy who has emerged at least through the first two episodes of the documentary as the villain of the last dance uh i thought it was funny that jordan was worried about how he was going to come off in this he's the hero of this you know he's depicted as you know the central character and uh he comes off very funny very engaging uh and charismatic even now in the interviews that they have but the villain is somebody that's not there to defend himself and that's jerry Krause, uh who was the gm of that team that built that team and then also tore down that team it's interesting i have always held a very negative opinion of jerry Krause. like i feel like most people who were basketball fans in that era but i did feel like this doc is like, is a little unfair and it's not necessarily its fault, but because he died in, in 2017, but like, it's unfortunate that he's not here to provide the balance there because obviously things happened that nobody can really speak to except for him. I mean, like you've got Steve Kerr speculating that he, he wanted, he didn't feel like he got enough credit, which is probably true, but I still feel like there's more to understand about why you would move on from that, that championship team, um, that we just, we, that we can't ever know that. And that I think is a little unfortunate. Yeah. And you, and you even have, you know, they talked to one of the two Jerry's that was, that were kind of blamed in the nineties for breaking up this team. And that's Jerry Reinsdorf, who was the owner of the Bulls. But even he has a little bit of cover where he's, you know, discussing the, the conversations and it's just sort of like Kraus did this, Kraus wanted to do that. And it's like, Jerry, you are the owner of this team. If you disagree with what Jerry Kraus is doing, you can always overrule him. And if it's really coming down to it's either Phil Jackson or Jerry Kraus, you could have chosen to side with Phil Jackson, fire Jerry Kraus. You know, they could have done things that would have actually sort of paved things over and and kept the team together in 99 and going forward. They just chose not to. And probably the money had a lot to do with it also. Yeah, you saw that with the Pippen contract. That was all Jerry Reinsdorf, who said, I mean, he said in the documentary that, like, once you sign a contract, don't come back to me. That's your contract. It, it's interesting. Yeah, it it, it does show uh, it, it put it in perspective how much more pl- uh, power the players have now, um, for sure, even in this, you know, not that not that man- much time has passed, but it's, it's significantly shifted in their um, into their corner. And in terms of the breakup, it's just funny how there's just too many egos in the room and someone had to go. I mean, you had Krause's ego, Jackson's ego and Jordan's ego, and it's just like it's not going to work. And someone had to take a back seat. And it's interesting that, that, you know, maybe just fire the GM in that spot if you're the owner of that team. Yeah, because Jordan and and Jackson, from all accounts, actually had a great relationship. And Jordan even went so far as to say the only coach that I want to play for is Phil. And maybe that was also part of the bargaining tactics to try to force out Kraus. But at the same time, you know, if, if two of the three are willing to come back, but the third is standing in the way, 
and and I think Phil Jackson is arguably the best coach ever. You could take issue with that based on who he's had to work with, but also he did a great job managing, you know, the egos and and not just with this team, but with Kobe and Shaq and then Kobe later even after he came back. So, you know, and Jordan's record speaks for itself. So if you're going to side with people, maybe side with uh, the best coach and the best player of all time, potentially, rather than uh, this GM. See, that's why I think there's more going on that we're never going to know about, that there was more happening there than just what l- clearly looks black and white and like seems crazy in hindsight. And I mean, I think Jerry Krause does obviously deserve a lot of credit for building that team, though afterwards he obviously didn't do quite as good of a job. And, you know, none of the, the draft picks really worked out and, and, and all hey, that. Hey, Tyson Chandler was pretty good for a long time. <laughs> yeah, no. I do. I do also think one comp to today is the Brady and and Belichick thing. Where is if you win this many titles, there's very few teams that can even like be in this position where it's like six titles and and you're like, eh, do we need any more? I really don't like working with this guy anymore. Um, and I, we literally saw that with Brady leaving Belichick. He's like, you know. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to try something else. So I think there was some of that. And I also thought it was interesting and that clearly Jordan was very mean to Krause. I mean, like they were really harsh on him. He's like asking him that one clip in the, I think it was the first episode where he's asking if he's taking his diet pills or something. It was like, Oh, I was like, God, Pippin too. They were really terrible. Yeah. They were harsh. I mean, I so I do think Krause is like I I don't know if he's sympathetic, but I do think it's a it's a pity that he didn't get to say his side. Considering this documentary got literally everyone to talk. I mean, I, that was one of the most shocking things about it was like Obama comes on as Chicago oh president. That was amazing. Yeah, and Bill Clinton. Clinton <laughs> talk about <laughs> talk about Piven and what <laughs> Bird pops in, and you know, it's like oh my, who did they not talk to? Stern, who's died, is there, and like they they got everyone. So yeah. They said nobody turned them down for an interview, too, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, clearly. I mean, who who could they possibly be asking that? And they said 6.6 million people watched those first two episodes. So, yeah, this is obviously what I mean. Everyone now understands Jordan's side and nobody will ever believe Jerry Krause. But I, I did think it was interesting just talking more generally about the documentary it does confirm what we've all known for a long time, which is that Jordan is not the nicest person in the world. And that's a nice way of, of on my part of saying it. <laughs> and if we see that, we see evidence of that with some of this footage, you know, like the turning down the autographs and that kind of thing, which is like I've heard, you know, a million times before, like he's the last person to ever approach for an autograph. It's interesting that LeBron's legacy, I, I wonder how much it'll affect their legacies where LeBron has never had an issue with that. He's always been very gracious and seemingly very kind. So I wonder, you know, years from now, if that will shape their opinion, because the, the media and I think the general public perception tends to do this with, with people they really like, whether that's Derek Jeter, or David Ortiz or something like that. It does, team, it does seem to shape legacies. But it helps to be charming when you need to be. And we saw that also yeah. in the in the documentary sure. from Jordan, uh, you know, when he cracked that joke about the Cubs rebuilding for 50 <laughs> years or whatever. I mean, Jordan was a master of knowing when to like who to charm and when to do it, even if at baseline he was also a gigantic a-hole to his teammates <laughs> a lot of the time. I actually I loved I loved the 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 rookie year Jordan being asked um, you know, if the transition from college to the NBA was difficult. And he was like, nah, it's pretty easy. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was like a very nice, unguarded Jordan moment that I that I, I really love. I I also like the moment where he read the uh thing on the iPad that the the letter he wrote to his mom. It was like, wow, this he that was like the most human I've seen Jordan in a while. And of course, yeah, yeah he, he knew how yeah. to turn it on and give that like McDonald's commercial smile when he needed to. Yeah. So I think your perception of him then has a lot to do with whether you think like the winning at all costs, including being a jerk to people to push them. Is that worth it? Um, so I, I think that that might color how you how you have viewed him. But 
do you think that this documentary will change the way people think about Jordan? I was going to say it's hard because, I mean, I think most people not only put him as probably the greatest basketball player of all time, but in that short list of greatest American athletes of all time up there with, you know, Muhammad Ali and, and Babe Ruth and just iconic figures. So if anything, there's just room to go down. Um, but from what I've seen so far in the way he's, you know, sipping his bourbons and, and talking pretty candidly, um, <laughs> is it a bur- I don't know what he's drinking, but he's boozing. I do wonder if people who didn't, who, you, you know, we talked um, when, um, when Kobe Bryant died, we talked about how a lot of the younger players in the league right now had Kobe as their role model. They didn't grow up with Jordan like people of our age <laughs> did. So do you, I wonder if younger people of that generation who like know Jordan was great, but never really spent that much time watching him now being able to see those, to see that 63 point game do you want to see the some of the highlights watch him in action i wonder if people will gain a new appreciation for him that way if they haven't been able to see him before i i think it the documentary didn't really i I don't know how much it will change things because it didn't really surprise me and i've read the book that a lot of this is based on uh playing for keeps by david halberstam which also kind of hits Jerry Krause really hard and, and makes him the villain and does a lot of the same sort of like switching in time between the present, you know, the 98 season and everything that led up to that. So for me, it's like, oh, this is just playing for keeps the movie uh, <laughs> right now. Uh, but, you know, I could see people to your point, Sarah, about those that didn't watch him at the time and maybe didn't even have really reason to read about him or anything like that that this will sort of introduce them to the narrative of Jordan in a way that it's the narrative that we've been told about him for a long time. I think that in some ways that's going to be the thing that keeps this from elevating to the level of like, you know, OJ made in America or something like that, where it's like, it's not really giving us something new and it's not even necessarily maybe, maybe this will change later on, but it doesn't seem like it's going to make a broader statement about, society or or culture aside from just the basketball element of it and maybe that's right for jordan because jordan is famously apolitical you know Mm -hmm. republicans buy sneakers too Mm -hmm. uh but i think that it's it's doing a workmanlike job of telling the story uh, of jordan and kind of hitting the points that you would want and maybe that's what we need out of a documentary about jordan right now yeah right now especially um I know I was sure grateful for the nostalgia too. It was, um, it was very nice to go back to that. Okay. I think that's a good place to leave this. Let's take a break. And when we are back, we will have our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. So this isn't as much a descent into data per se, but it is a descent into the minutia of rules in basketball. Uh, So I think that that does qualify for rabbit hole status. And as every basketball fan knows, you can take two steps after dribbling before you get called for traveling. But what they might not know, or maybe not agree with at least, is that at certain levels of the game, including the NBA and FIBA, there's actually a third legal step that you can take if you time it right. This has something to do with the gather step or what they call the zero step. Zero because it doesn't actually count toward <laughs> that one, two of traveling that we're all familiar with. I like if you have to like define a step as the zero one, like right. if you're defining it, maybe it is a step. Maybe okay. it should count. But I digress. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so here's the language of this gather provision that the NBA formally added to its rule book a few years ago. So they say for a player who is in control of the ball while dribbling, the gather is defined as the point where a player does any one of the following. Number one puts two hands on the ball or otherwise permits the ball to come to rest while he is in control of it. Number two, puts a hand under the ball and brings it to a pause. Or number three, otherwise gains enough control of the ball to hold it, change hands, pass, shoot, or cradle it against his body. Now, they go on to say as part, uh, they kind of unify this with the traveling rule. And they say a player who gathers the ball while dribbling may take two steps in coming to a stop, passing, or shooting the ball. The first step occurs when a foot or both feet touch the floor after the player gathers the ball. That last part is really crucial to all this because in other words you can get an interpretation of it where you essentially get a free extra step if that step happens before or as the player is gaining full control of the ball with both hands 
And this is how James Harden, who's the patron saint of all this stuff, can make these plays where he gathers the ball at the three-point line on a full sprint, then Euro steps into the lane without a single dribble, and then finally lays it in. It looks like a travel, but it's actually completely legal because of this gather provision. And the same goes for Harden's famous step back, where he takes an extra step to get more space. That's legal, too, because the rule never specifies that any of the steps have to be in the direction of the basket. They can be off to the side. They can be in the opposite direction. And this is also why uh, Harden has even started to shoot one-legged fadeaway step back threes just to get exactly the number of steps that he's allowed under the rules without it being called a travel. So none of this is really new. NBA players have been pushing this boundary for a few years. I remember the first time that I saw Manu Ginobili do the Euro step and think <laughs> there's no way this is legal. And that's kind of part of this. But over the weekend, I was watching YouTube and I saw a video by the terrific YouTuber and podcaster Nick Hauselman at his channel B-Ball Breakdown, which I would encourage all of our listeners to go check out. That really got me thinking about where these loopholes could go next. So in the video, and we'll link it in the um, the post for uh, this episode, uh, Coach Nick sits down with former NBA referee Ronnie Nunn to break down some viral clips that he says have been triggering fans who can't believe the plays aren't travels. So in the first clip, and I want you guys to imagine this uh, in, in your mind's eye, there's a player who appears to be going in for a layup on the right side of the rim. He gathers, he takes a step, he launches himself into the air off his right foot, and then he comes down onto his left foot without actually shooting and then relaunches for another layup on the other side of the basket. The, at full speed, this seems insane. There's no way this could not be a travel, but technically, he ended his dribble with a gather step, then he went up on the right side with step one, and then came down for step two, and then shot off of that foot on the left side of the basket. That's only two steps. I think that the gather thing is really interesting because it has been a rule since 2009. It, the language was changed in September. So I wonder if that has made us like more, like maybe more players are trying or pushing the boundaries because of that language change. But like, really, it's pretty creative, right? I mean, players are trying to get more creative within the rules as they understand them. And so those those shots look like they're absolutely illegal, but they're like super creative, interesting shots. So I, I don't know. It comes back to this debate always of like, well, that's not the basketball that I learned when I was in, you know, third grade or whatever. I <laughs> I would have definitely been called for a travel. Um, also, I was probably traveling because I was terrible at basketball. I think that the thing here, why it's triggering is <laughs> because <laughs> it looks you know, an up and down, which I guess is a variation of travel. It it looks like he's he's jumping twice. It, it's almost like a if you watch the video, it's kind of reminds me of like in the Olympics, like the triple jump. <laughs> and it's actually kind of the same thing he's doing. But but that's actually relevant here because, as the ref says in that video, if he gets fouled on that first leap, they're probably going to call that a shooting foul, which that doesn't seem fair. And I think that's where there's an issue because it, it looks like he's jumping twice rather than, you know, just taking steps. But, you know, if you watch in slow motion, seems OK. Uh <laughs> <laughs> And that's the case with a lot of these James Harden things that he's already doing. He got called for a travel on a particular play where he kind of did the gather and then did the two Euro steps afterward. And if you slow it down into slow motion, it's actually, it was a bad call. He should have been allowed to pull off that play within the rules. And so, I don't know, are we, are we going to get to a point where you need to be able to slow down when a player's gather technically happened relative to their last step before taking their two legal steps afterward uh, to, to decide whether it's a, a, a travel or not? Uh, I don't know. And, and how would we feel about basketball if all of a sudden, yeah, you had these like option plays where you kind of went up in the air, you had the option to shoot if the defense, you know, kind of let you, but if the defense you know, timed it right and got in your face, you just come down and then make another shot off of that. I mean, I think that that would radically change the way that basketball was played and it would look really weird and, and it would just have all these kind of ripple effects. But I don't know how you get around it with the rules being what they are, because to your point, Sarah, they added that distinction about the gather step really only to codify what they had been allowing to happen for years that, the you know, the idea of there being only one step 
after your dribble is done was sort of ignored. The referees were actually told, hey, just let him have two, even though the rules <laughs> say one. And they wanted to get rid of that situation. But now once you put it in writing, you have all these rules lawyers like James Harden trying to kind of figure out exactly where the line is and how much they can get away with and understand why the NBA would want to kind of not have it be one step only after the gather, but have it be two is that it's a lot more exciting and dynamic to watch guys slice to the basket, especially with in conjunction with hand checking being kind of taken away and the illegal defense being, you know, uh, rule being altered. It's funny because I actually feel like traveling as a rule isn't really broken. And for this reason, because it seems, you know, in real time, it passes or it fares well in the eye test. Like if you're at a basketball game and a guy travels, you'll hear a groan in the crowd. And it is generally be called, whereas in other sports like pass interference, you know, the crowd, unless you're a Saints fan, <laughs> the crowds, they don't re- you don't really know at full speed. You got to look at it again and see what happened. And you go to baseball and the balk, which I always think is the funniest one, where the crowd just clearly doesn't know the rule. At every baseball game, if a guy fakes a pickoff to second base, the crowd groans like, oh, balk. <laughs> right <laughs> where he's not breaking a rule he's stepping off the rubber it's like no one really knows the rule so you, you know it, it, there's there's a lot of room in there i do think the balk is a rule where the definition you could see some uh some innovation on players to like take advantage of that we've seen that a little bit i forget which pitcher it was who has the you darvish who who has that that almost that hesitation where it's almost like he's stopping his motion yeah, we a couple guys do that double clutch, and I think they actually had to clarify the rules to to outlaw it or, or at least modify it. Well, in basketball, I mean the other like a, a the other part of that traveling thing is like the other thing that James Harden does, which is coming down on like basically on your opponent after you shoot to draw that foul that because the opponent needs to let you land. But that has obviously been taken advantage of and not just by Harden, by, you know, Steph Curry does that too. A lot of players do that. And so like there are, there are those like little loopholes, but again, leagues have it within their power to fix that. Like if the league was like, okay, that you've gone too far with this, they could always bring back, um, and curtail the, the step stuff. I mean, they've, they've changed the language on it. They could change it more. Yeah, and they might have to eventually if players start doing this weird like jump and then come down and then shoot again. So, you know, uh, it's coming for you, Adam Silver. You better watch out. (laughs) Okay, I think that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please review and rate us on your podcast app. It really does help new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.